I learned how to walk here, you know? I ate food from this land. Like, I swam in your oceans. I played in the desert. Everything about my life is associated with this land. And having no sense of permanence here really complicates that. And I sometimes wonder if, let's say, for some whatever reason, they grant me citizenship, would I be able to call this place home, you know? Is it just that? Or is it more than that? I don't know. I don't. Well, like, what is home? You know what I mean? This place that I could easily call my home if I was a citizen of is not. So then what is home? Do you feel a sense of connection to Syria? Not at all. Like, not at all. Today, we have a story about where we're from. Like that question you get asked when you're first introducing yourself to someone. My name is, I'm from, this one place. It's like there's some societal expectation that it's meant to be a simple answer. But for many of us, and I as Hiba, feel like this, the answer is never simple. So today, we're going to explore that. The messy, not straightforward answer of where we're from. And of the places we know best, there's no place where this mixed identity phenomenon is amplified more than in the United Arab Emirates. I'm Hiba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, a podcast dissecting the complex narratives of the Middle East through stories. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Two quick notes about today's story before we start. Something you'll notice right away is that it might sound like the interviews were done in different places. Because they were. We met with our main character a few times in different places to record our conversation together. So please bear with us on that. Secondly, there is a lot of swearing. It's actually this undeniable, charming characteristic of our main character. And because of strict rules, marking this episode explicit, as we're meant to, would get us banned from most Middle East iTunes stores. So this version you're listening to on our public channel is censored. If you want the full deal, in all its glory, then we really, really recommend you go down to the show notes in your podcast app and find the link to our website where you can stream the uncensored version there. It'll take a few extra seconds, but it'll be so worth it. Okay, let's get started. One, two. Our story today was brought to us by producer Alex Atak. Um, so Alex Atak, I'm a producer at Kerning Cultures. And our story today is about my friend Maysam. My name is Maysam Faraj, a Syrian born and raised in the UAE. He works as a video producer. And also a skateboarder. So just to explain to you quickly how, um, how I know Maysam. So we were both brought up in Dubai around the same time. And we know each other because we were both skateboarders. That was like the thing that I did at the weekends with all my friends. Like I spent any time I wasn't in school, I was skateboarding. There was like me and my friends. 
And then there was an older group and Maysan was part of this older group of kids who were always at the skate park. And like, you know how it is at that age, like they were older and, and therefore cooler. <laughs> and so growing up, I, I never really spoke to Maysan. He's probably, he's like eight years older than me. And then kind of as we got older and like the age gap started to close up, um, I, I became friends with him. But I left Dubai when I was 13, so in 2006, and I'd come back probably like once a year um, and visit friends and all that kind of thing. And slowly friends would start to leave and, you know, their families would move to their home country or somewhere else. But the thing I remember about Maysam is that like he was just always, he was like always around. He's lived there nonstop since he was born, you know, so when I started making this episode about people who were brought up in Dubai, Maysam was kind of like one of the first people I wanted to speak to. We started this episode with an idea to look at this phrase, third culture kids. And I mean, it, like if you've ever lived in Dubai or like Singapore or kind of like really any city where there's where there's like a large population of Western migrants, um, you'll have like heard this phrase. But if you haven't, it's basically this kind of like catch all label that um, that just defines anybody who was raised outside of their parents' country of origin. And as that's the case for a lot of the Cunning Cultures team, um, Hibber and I included, we saw it as this. We saw it as this opportunity to kind of explore our own upbringings in in some ways. And so, when I started speaking to people, one thing that would one thing that kept coming up was this question of like, where do I call home? I, I speak to people who'd moved to Dubai in their twenties and people who were raised there from when they were born, and they'd never been back to their home country. Um, and they kind of had this real question of like, well, how can I call my home country home when you know I've never lived there? But then I can't call Dubai home because I'm never going to be a citizen there. I have the same rights as somebody who landed yesterday. And then I started talking to Maysam and, and I kind of realised that for him, this question of home carries so much more weight than that. His parents are from Syria, a country that he's hardly visited. He went there once when he was a kid. He says he feels no connection to it and, you know, he couldn't safely repatriate there now, even if he wanted to. His Syrian passport has kind of affected well, it's, it's affected every aspect of his life, from his friendships to his work and, you know, his education opportunities. And, you know, somewhere down the line, it'll affect his retirement. But we're going to talk about all of that later. For now, I just want to take you to the first time I interviewed Maysan, which was in November 2016. I showed up to his house kind of late one evening. Uh, we'd both just finished work for the day. And he poured us a pot of black coffee and we sat down at his kitchen table. And after a little catching up, I, I brought out my mic. Are you rolling? Cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was born here, man. Ages ago, I was born and then I've been stuck here ever since. My parents moved out here from Syria. Um, they eloped, actually. Both of my parents were artists. And um, yeah, they just didn't, they didn't mesh well with that society. I think after they were done with university, my dad was like, all right, it, let's, um, let's get out of here and um, let's seek a new opportunity. And the reasons for choosing the UAE was, I think... It was, it was just a general thing of like a lot of their friends were looking for opportunities and a lot of them ended up in Dubai because at the time there was a lot of hype around this new city that's growing really fast and it's an Arabic country and it's really close by and it's not Europe. You don't have to learn another language and stuff. So they moved out here and uh, gave it a shot. So his parents moved out to Dubai in the late 80s and for a while it was good. But as companies started bringing in more people from all over the world, particularly Western migrants, Maysam said, his parents couldn't compete in the job market. His mum spoke very little English at the time and worked as a receptionist, while his dad worked at the newspaper Al Bayan. 
But at some point when Maysan was two, his parents broke up and his mum began raising him and his brother as a single parent. I just have to think back to being in high school, you know, so like I wasn't in a fancy school or anything. I was in a, you know, humble school, but like it was pretty much like every every couple of months, like I'd get pulled out of class because of failure to pay school fees or something like that. You know what I mean? Or I'd be the guy who gets the envelope in class like, hey, Sam, here's the envelope. Like, tell your dad to pay. I remember living, I think up until I was five or six in a in a six-story building in Sharjah. So Sharjah is a neighboring state to Dubai. Between the ages of like four and seven, my memories are mostly Arab expats, you know, and they were from all over. You know, they were from Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. Um, like I hung out with Armenians, Indians, Emiratis, Yemenis, like everyone spoke Arabic and we all spoke this thing that we called Arabita, which was like a mix of all the different Arabic so we could all communicate with each other. So it was like a street slang. Back then, it was Jamera. Jamera was like Diafa Street. And Diafa Street used to be like the place that was happening. You know what I mean? That's where, that's like where all the parents would go on the weekend. You know what I mean? To go get a coffee at Café de Paris or whatever it was, you know? Um, there was a Hardee's there, and that's where like a lot of initiations went down into gangs. Like you, you know, you would get jumped behind Hardee's, or like you'd have to fight someone behind Hardee's <laughs> on the upper street. <laughs> I remember one time, me and my friends, we really didn't want to be at school, and we used to walk to school. Um, we're like, really don't want to go to school today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys too. Yeah, cool. Let's set the bin outside on fire and then go home. You know, we'd set the bin on fire and just be like, all right, cool. So school's closed today. We just go home. I would go knock on the doors during Eid, you know, and ask for a Eid gift, which was money, you know, like five dirhams. <laughs> I would walk for 30 minutes through the desert and then I need water and the gate was open and Maradi's gate was open. You go up to the door and you knock and the door was always ajar. And then you just yell like, can I get some water? And then, you know, they'd hook you up with some water, like a little plastic thing of water and maybe a date because it was still there. That was still part of their culture and it was still like totally cool for them to do that. So I've really experienced that and that's gone. But at a core level, that stuff is still there. To navigate the city now, I need a map. I, I don't know anything anymore. The roads change so much, like so many developments pop up and um, you know, you don't visit a particular area and then all of a sudden that whole roundabout or that whole intersection or something is gone. And now you're lost on a road that you have gone down for 20 years. You know what I mean? And I feel like a foreigner in the closest thing to home. I mean, that just that just showcases like how fast the city develops and how much stuff happens. And, you know, you don't have to you don't really have to look at all that stuff. You just need to look at what's gone from your childhood. It's not a sentimental city. It can't be. It's so young. It has to grow. And, you know, it's a city that unfortunately is transient for a lot of people. So it can't afford to be sentimental. Outside of school, there was skateboarding for me. And that was predominantly a Western crew. That's where I felt like I struggled, you know, because I was still learning English at the time. Um, the majority of them went to 
British schools and they were Brits or they were dual citizenship holders. Oh, people would grill me on my accent, you know? It still happens to this day. Like every time I go somewhere else, they're like, they'll yell at me like, oh, America. And I'm like, I'm not American. They're like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, their mind's blown. I'm like, I just learned English this way, you know? Where are you from? Syria. My mom, I think, um, I think she probably tried to do the best that she could to kind of instill a sense of identity, like a Syrian identity in us, you know what I mean? But at the same time, like she was a lady that like, I guess she, she felt like a single parent, even though there was a dad around, you know what I mean? She would talk about Syria and that kind of stuff. We'd listen to Feyruz every single morning from like when I was five till 18, every single morning Feyruz was on. I never, I never had this nagging thing to define where I was from. I never thought about being Syrian. I never really questioned things. It, I didn't feel the effect of being a Syrian. Uh, the only time it started coming into, into my mind, like what it means to be Syrian and what effect that has on my life was when I started doing... Okay, the earliest example I could think of is going to Korea. When Maysan was young, he was invited to compete for Syria at a skateboarding contest in Korea. But to get there, he needed to extend his passport because a Korean visa required a certain amount of time left on his passport before it expired. I go to the Korean consulate, I'm like, yo, so can you make an exemption? Here's the invitation letters and all this kind of stuff. They're like, sorry, policy's policy. Um, but look, I mean, you're representing Syria in the X Games, so just go over there and just tell them to extend it. You know, they'll give you like a month extension or something like that, it's just a sticker. Just put that sticker on there, you're good. I'm like, okay, cool. So keep in mind, I'm like a teenager who's taking a bus to Abu Dhabi, you know, skating from wherever the bus goes all the way to the consulate. And then now I gotta bus it back to Dubai and then make my way over to the Syrian consulate. You know, and I'm a young, I'm a young dude who feels foreign, like going into my consulate. This thing, I'm like, I have to go here because my passport says I'm from here, but I do not connect with this at all. I'm looking around the room, I'm like, everybody looks different, everybody carries himself differently. And, you know, I'm like a teenager who's assessing this room, like, why are the walls dirty? You know what I mean? Why is there no cue? Why is, why are people shouting? You know, I was, I'm like, I'm like, I'm a kid. And I'm like, this place sucks. And I'm from this, apparently I'm from this place. Anyways, make my way over to the counter and I start explaining all this stuff. I'm like, dude, I'm representing Syria in this contest. I'm the only Syrian in the world who skateboards, who's um, doing this thing and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, sorry, we can't help you. So I go back to the, <laughs> go back to the Korean consulate and I'm like, hey, this is the situation. They're like, fucking amazing with me. They're like, oh, that's so, so sorry. Let's see what we can do. You know, we'll call them and we'll explain to them how serious this contest is and what a big honor it is for Syria. They're so sweet. And I remember I was there. They were making the phone calls there. It wasn't like, come back later. They were like, no, we're gonna do this now because we want you to go. And they were just kind of like, they won't budge. Sorry. I remember taking the bus back. I remember crying in the bus, like tearing up and feeling so about being part of this country that gives like zero about me. And here I am in this other country's consulate who are treating me so well and they have zero obligations to me. You know what I mean? And they tried their hardest to support me where my Syrian consulate was just kind of like, no, 
So it was incidents like that that started bringing the Syrian topic into my mind, like what it feels to be Syrian, what it means to be Syrian. And because of those things, I started battling with myself. I'm like, well, why am I Syrian? What's cool about Syria? Like, it's apparently nothing, you know what I mean? I can't even travel there. Maysam's connection to Syria was basically through his immediate family in Dubai. And, you know, growing up, his parents didn't speak to their parents that much. And so, you know, he never really visited Syria. He never really went back in the holidays. Actually, he only ever went once when he was really young. And then when he got older, because, you know, because Syria has this mandatory military draft for men when they turn 18, Maysam and his family decided that it was, it was just best if he, if he never went back. We had a cousin who, he, he was with the army. First day, sniped. <laughs> Done. 20, 22. First day. You know, and he was a good kid. He was just a kid who had to do it. I didn't want to do it. The added pressure on top of that was like, okay, cool. So um, it's only going to happen if I set foot in Syria. So as long as I don't set foot in Syria, I'm good. Personally, I have no connection to Syria. But I know how much my mom loved Syria for particular reasons and why she still goes back. And at a certain point, at a certain age, when I was, when I'm older, smarter, you know, um, I started, started realizing how important it was for, for me to know where my mom came from, you know, to, to feel connected to what she was once connected to and what she still feels connected to. So I, I wanted to fill in those blanks, you know what I mean? Like, I know she had a shop at a souk. Well, what does that souk smell like? What does it sound like? What does it look like? You know, I wanted to feel all of that stuff. And I wanted her to kind of take me on this journey to, like, this is where it was. It was right here. It was bigger, it was smaller than this, whatever. I've already missed the chance of witnessing Syria, you know, in, its, in all of its glory um, because of the war. But I still feel like I still might have a chance to have my mom walk me through some of these things just to kind of, you know, have the full picture of my mom. So Maysam is Syrian by passport, but only really by passport. Culturally, he's had this mixed upbringing in the UAE, which is, you know, at the end of the day, it's a nation he doesn't have lasting claim to. But until now, this hasn't really affected his life in any kind of concrete way. And then when he was 19, he met this girl online. And, and that's when the lines of where he's from and where he can go, they started to blur a little more. So we met on a, basically a MySpace for skateboarding called Ice Lounge. They built this uh, MySpace for skateboarders, and it was awesome, you know? And it was for skateboarders or anyone who was really into skateboarding. What year is this? Ah, man. <laughs> okay, when did I start talking to this girl? I don't know, dude. This is where you can interject and put your voice in there <laughs> saying, we looked it up, it says this. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we did look it up. The, the website doesn't exist anymore. It's just a placeholder page. But the earliest mention I could find of it anywhere else was in 2005. So yeah, we met on this forum and it was a, it was a very simple exchange of like, Hey, I like your videos. It was from her. And I'm like, thanks. I like yours too. Cause she was also a skateboard videographer. She was based in uh, San Antonio, Texas. It was very like, tell me about what skating's like in San Antonio, you know? 
how old was she? You know, what's she into? What kind of music? Oh, you're into Modest Mouse? I'm into Modest Mouse, you know? Have you heard of Built to Spill? No, you'd love them. I love Built to Spill. Took the conversation to MSN, you know? Um, we discovered that MSN now supports webcams. Were you nervous when you first? Dude, you have no idea. So nervous. It was like, what's the angle that I'm gonna present myself at as the first time? You know, like I, <laughs> I like I wrecked the location, you know, I turned the camera on, I found the angle, cool, great. What's in frame? What does everything look like? You know what I mean? It's nerve wracking. Now here's the kicker. You have the video cameras, you have the webcams, but you can't talk. You still have to type. That alone in itself is just kind of romantic, you know what I mean? You can't be there. Like you can't have that face-to-face -face interaction, you can't have that real-time interaction, but you're doing what you can. And it worked, you know? We built a relationship, you know, as kids. Okay, so at this point in our story, May Sam's 19 years old. And, you know, they, they kept talking for a few months, but then things just fizzled out as, as they tend to do at that age, right? And then after they stopped these initial kind of chats, they, they lost contact. So let's jump forward a few years and bring you up to 2009, four years later. May Sam's doing some work with an NGO called Skaterstan, um, who help build skate parks and teach skateboarding to children in Afghanistan. So he's in Kabul and, you know, he's kind of having a tough time. It was an emotionally draining place to be for him and, and he's struggling to sleep at night. So on one particular night, it's, you know, he's lying awake in bed, it's, it's about 4am and then his phone lights up. And uh, that's when she messaged me. Um, and then we started talking again. Now... What did she say when you first messaged dude, her? Dude, I don't remember, but I could, you know, I could probably find that on Facebook. Yes! Can you? <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, so this is July 28th, 2009. 4.25 um, a.m. Dubai time. So she says, I really want to know how you are doing. We haven't talked in so long and I'm glad I saw you on here. I hope we can talk. And then a day later I reply, hey, that's exactly why I haven't written back yet. I'm really busy and I don't, I don't want small talk. I uh, want to write you a proper message. Get back to you when I get a chance. It's amazing that you found me on here. Trust me, I looked a couple of times. And yeah, then we picked up a conversation on Skype and we started having, you know, full HD, real-time conversations and caught up and where things changed was when she told me that she quit her job because she was going to go work on a film set in India. It's always been her dream to get into cinema and work on movies and she found this opportunity so she's going to go for it. And I'm like, hey, why don't you stop in Dubai? You know, uh, find a connecting flight or something like that. Spend a day or two out here in Dubai. She let me know she's coming. I'm coming to Dubai. That was like a holy shit moment. So the plan was, she flies into Dubai, she crashes at mine for two, three days, and then she goes, she makes her way over to India. Still taking things very cautiously, um, still super friendly, still good intentions, nothing devious here. You know what I mean? There wasn't any ulterior motives at all. I parked the car, um, made my way into the airport. I waited out there, spotted her, I waved, um, gave her a big fat hug, and I remember, I remember just tripping out like but like in a good way it was like holy this is real like you're here oh my god you're tiny you know what i mean um 
gave her a big fat hug. She had a huge suitcase because she was going to be in India for like several months. You know, walked her over to the car and yeah, put her suitcase in the trunk and then started driving home. And, you know, it was like the weirdest conversation in the car. It was like, you know, sentences like, how crazy, this is like real time now, you know? Or, so this is Dubai, you know? <laughs> like just the worst, worst conversation ever. And I was living with my mom at the time, right? So I walked into the apartment. I think my mom was asleep because it was pretty late. Maybe we were way into the bedroom and I just have this one room. So I have that loft bed and I have like a sofa bed. So I was planning on sleeping on the loft bed and she was sleeping on the sofa bed, like all cool. And then I remember we were sitting on the, on the sofa bed, just like chatting for a while. And then we were both pretty tired. Like it's late for me. And she just got off of like 55 hour flight or whatever. Um, and I remember laying down and I, I don't know, I think she like tapped me on the head or something like that. And I turned over and then she kissed me and, um, yeah, we just like, we made out for a while and like, I think just fell asleep in each other's arms. I don't know, for all I know, we could not kiss tomorrow, whatever. Like this is that moment. It's a beautiful moment and it is what it is. And you know, in a couple of days she'll be going to India. And then she never did. The film she was going to make in India, it lost its funding. And so she ended up staying in Dubai for a few more years and her and Maysan's relationship became more serious. And you know, as it became more serious, they started thinking about places they could go to begin their life together. And remember, by this point, the conflict in Syria had broken out. So, so moving there just, just wasn't going to be an option. So we came up with this plan of like, all right, let's move to the US, you know, put in a couple of years there and then work towards getting my citizenship. And then the world's our oyster from there. So that was kind of the reason why we decided to get married, you know? Um, yeah, there was a lot of love and like it was a real deal relationship, you know what I mean? So that's why I was totally okay with it. And she came here in 2011? How long, when did you guys get married after Didn't she like... came here? So as we were talking to Maysam about his wedding, he was kind of struggling to remember dates. And so, and so he brings out this skateboard, which his mum had bought for him at his wedding and, and everyone had signed it and they'd written all of the kind of major milestones of their relationship on this board. All right, so I'm holding this frame that's from, it's a gift from our mom that we got on our wedding day and it highlights like the dates, the important dates. So we first fell in love in 2005 and met for the first time in 2009, asked her to marry me in 2012 and she said yes in also 2012. So once they married, they could apply for a spousal visa and begin the process of emigrating to the US. To get that visa, one of the first steps was an interview in Abu Dhabi. I remember being super nervous about like being punctual because it was in Abu Dhabi. So I made a decision to go out to Abu Dhabi and stay at a hotel right next to the embassy. And that way, like there's no, there's no way that anything can go wrong. I remember we went in my car, went in, did my appointment, and the dude just had like, just the worst attitude, like just, you know, zero humanity, not looking me in the eye at all. I could not make eye contact with the dude. He looked at my paperwork. He asked me some really generic questions, nothing like the movies where, you know, like she allergic to anything or whatever, you know? So it wasn't any of that stuff. It was just really random things like, where does her mom work? I'm like, well, her mom works at this place. And he's like, what's the address? I'm like, dude, I don't know. I've never been to the US. How am I supposed to know that? 
and you know you feel like you're messing it all up I'm waiting to see what he's gonna hand me what kind of paper and he's like here you go and I'm like is this a rejection he's like no I'm like is it an approval he's like no I'm like so what else is there he's like you've been put on administrative processing and I left that room and didn't hear back from him till two years later. So they left the embassy that day not knowing, not knowing how long Maysan would be on administrative processing, which from what we can tell is, is this kind of black hole within the US application system. It basically means that your application is pending and you can be on it for any amount of time, from like a month to, to just indefinitely. So knowing this, they, they made the decision that she would move back to the US ahead of him and continue studying. And meanwhile, Maysan would wait in the UAE for his visa to process. And as soon as it did, he'd fly out and join her. And yeah, dude, we were just doing this long distance Skype thing, you know, Skype dates, Skype movie dates, just had a virtual relationship. You know, we tried our best to have visits, you know, like have her kind of come back out here. But like, again, really tricky because it's the US and it's pretty expensive. Anyways, man. So, dude, I think no matter how solid your relationship is, like that much time apart is going to start affecting it. And, um... Slowly but surely, like, the relationship deteriorated, you know what I mean? Like, there was still a lot of love and there was still all that kind of stuff, but, like, things get confusing and, you know, um, yeah, dude. Like, it becomes, like, are you real? Like, what's it? I forgot, like, what she kind of looked like in person, you know what I mean? Like, seeing someone through a box, like, I remember, like, we organized one visit when she came out and I remember seeing her at the airport and, like, dude, I forgot how tiny she is, like... You forget like what details look like on someone's hand, how it feels to hold that person's hand, you know what I mean? There was a lot of tension um, within the relationship. A lot of it was, I think, resentment towards each other from both sides. Um, I resented the fact that I worked so hard to support both of us at a young age when I was just trying to get my shit, my own shit together. But then I realized at the same time that she resented me. You know, she resented the fact that uh, this was my home. And she resented the fact that she felt like she had spent so many years away from the States to be here with me. It was clear like it wasn't gonna work the same way it was before. And um, at some point I was just like, dude, what am I doing? What are we doing? I gotta, I gotta end this thing. I can't, you know? Um, and then I did. I Skyped with her and I put on my bravest face and uh, went against every, I don't know. It's funny, it's funny like having a conversation like that because you know what you want, but then when you start saying these things, Everything in your body is telling you kind of like, no, like, don't. Do you really want to do this? Because now you're just like cutting all of these ties. You're cutting all of this history. You're cutting all of these memories. And you're reducing them now to a, an X relationship. And this person is no longer numero uno. So they called it off. What had worked and made sense when they both lived in the same country just didn't translate to a long-distance relationship. 
But remember, U.S. immigration don't know that. And, and so on paper, Maysan's green card is still pending. I was, I remember I was sitting in my car. This was about a week after they decided to break up. And, um, you know, before coming, before getting out of the car and going to the skate park, I glanced at my phone real quick and saw there was an email. I was like, oh, the email was from his lawyer and, and he was getting in touch to tell him basically that his green card was ready. In fact, it had been ready for years. It had been sitting in someone's filing cabinet in an office somewhere. And for whatever reason, they hadn't let him know. And so in short, he could have, he could have moved to the US and joined his wife two years ago. And I was like, all right, you obviously read this wrong. Like, read it again. And I read it again. And then I was just like, it's just deflated, you know? And I was like, are you kidding me? So I called her up and she's like, does it mean what I think it means? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, holy And I'm like, yeah. She's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, nothing, you know? She's like, look, I mean, we can still you know, we could still give this a shot and you could still come out here and, you know, try and make this life. And I'm like, dude, I'm not going to live this facade. Like, no. I think for a lot of people, the opportunity to live and to work in the US is, is kind of, it's kind of seen as this golden ticket, you know, around the world, moving to the US is seen as this like dream situation. And if you get the green card and the visa to do it, then you're just really lucky. And so when we were interviewing Maysan, we kind of spent a lot of time talking about this question, which was like, like, what was it that made you pass up that opportunity to move to the U.S.? So why didn't you just take the opportunity when you had it, even if it came about in a really way? Yeah. Um, I don't know, dude. I mean, dude, I don't know. Look, so it's like a fight or flight kind of thing. It's just like this telling me, like, do not do it. Do not go there. Do not do this thing. I feel like the U.S. f***ed me before I've even gotten there. Whatever passport or nationality I'm going to work towards, I want to feel proud of being from that country. So he stayed. He stayed in Dubai, where his future was, you know, a little less certain, but at least it was a place that he was familiar with, where his friends were and where his work and where his entire life was. But as he said earlier on in the story... Dubai is this kind of transient, unsentimental city. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that's easy to say, but it became real for him when his mum started to approach retirement age. So can we talk briefly about your mum? Yeah, she actually just got her visa renewed. Oh, she did? Yeah, she called me to tell me that she got her visa renewed to work for another year. So I was just like, like, that's a, <laughs> that's a cause of celebration. So we talked about May Sam's mum briefly at the top of the episode. She moved here from Damascus in her 20s when nobody really knew what Dubai was going to be. And she's been there ever since. Now, in the UAE, if you're not of UAE nationality, you need a visa to live and work in the country. And these visas are typically provided by the company that you're working for. So when you get to retirement age of around 60 and you can't work anymore, it becomes more difficult to find someone to back you with a visa. For most nationalities, that's not a big deal, you know. Maybe it's difficult to leave the place you've lived for a few decades, but you have a safety net. You can move back to your home country. But if Syria is the only place you have a passport for, you know, moving, moving back there just isn't a safe option. I don't think my mom, I don't think people think like that. And my mom never really grew up like that. And 
she's always had this foundation or this base of Syria, this thing to go back to. And she left it at some point, but it's always been there for her. The only thing that changed over time is the war. You know, I know I'm kind of following the same footsteps in some way as what I said about my mom, maybe not choosing a different place in the world to reside and build a foundation and a home or whatever. Um, I'm aware of these things. I think that's the difference. I'm aware that I have to get out at some point. I don't think she was ever aware that this is not going to be, the, the UAE is not going to be my home forever. But I understand because she's, um, you know, she's getting, she's getting close to the age now where it's going to be really hard for her to renew her visa, you know? So she's going to have to move back to Syria at some point. So what, what's she going to do back there? My mom's parents were getting old. And, um, you know, it's those last couple of years, like, where you're kind of nervous about how long they're going to be around. So at some point where, you know, when things seem pretty chill in Damascus for a year, she made the call to go out there and visit her parents. So I was supposed to pick her up from the airport. And I think the day before she told me that her friends are going to pick her up from the airport. And I live like 10 minutes away from the airport. And I was like, okay, this is shady. Like something's up, but whatever. So she lands, you know, I speak to her on the phone. She sounds fine. She's like, uh, come over, you know? I'm like, yeah, I'm coming over now. I walk, walk over to her house and walk into her room. And, you know, there's my mom sitting on the couch. Um, she's, you know, five meters away from me, so I can't really see details, but I see that something's off. And as I start walking out, a little closer, I pass through the corridor and then all of her friends are visible to me now. And I'm looking at her, at her friends, you know, because um, all of a sudden I was like, oh, there's like five people here, <laughs> you know? So I glance at them, I see everyone looking at me like in anticipation of something. And I'm like, what the f is going on? And then I glance back to my mom and then I see that like, she's got cuts all over and like, you know, like some gnarly stuff. And I see that there's this thick bandaid on her neck um, that's kind of bloody. She's like, hi, Sam. I had an adventure like you in Afghanistan. And I'm like, what happened? Just, I just it just kicked into the point where I was like, there's zero emotion. Like, I'm like, what's going on? What happened? She bought a flight from an airline uh, who would not sell her a return flight. So she bought a one way. For whatever reason, they had this system at the moment where they're like, well, we can't because it's Syria. You're going to have to buy the second half of your ticket from our office in Syria. So she went out there, she visited her family, you know, she was out there for a few days and, um, you know, she had a free day and she's like, all right, I'm going to go down and buy my return ticket. And she's walking down the street, you know, in a very secure area because it's a governmental district. She's walking over to the uh, airline office and you know, there's military and barriers and all that kind of checkpoints and all that stuff. And she just got unlucky and a mortar landed next to her. A lot of people up, killed a lot of people. She got pumped full of shrapnel. She didn't know what happened. She saw the flash. Well, and then you've got this guy over there with half his head taken off, you know, and like, 
chaos and you can't call anyone because there's too much blood on your hands. You can't use your phone. Like, the touchscreen isn't working. A lot of the men out there kind of handled the situation, so they did whatever they could to help whoever, you know. Um, and the ambulances came pretty quickly and uh, rushed everyone off to the hospital. She was in the hospital for eight days, undergoing a bunch of surgeries to try and take as much of the shrapnel out as possible. So now she beeps when she goes through metal detectors. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's okay. She's a tough cookie. You know, so that that's also been like a kind of kind of like a reminder like, hey dude, you could have done something. You know, you could have gone to the US and you could have maybe been in a better situation to help your family out, but at the same time, like there's no guarantee. I mean, if I could do whatever I wanted, then I'd, you know, buy my mom a place somewhere that's beautiful and nice and where the people are friendly and laid back and throw her over there and just tell her, go enjoy the rest of your years, you know? And I don't think that she wants to be anywhere else besides Syria right now. And I don't know why, but I understand it. She's old. She wants to go to what's familiar. She doesn't want to try a new country with new cultures and all this kind of stuff at this point of her life. But as long as Damascus is relatively safe and the situation in Syria, you know, still shit going on, but it's a lot calmer than it was a year and a half ago. As long as she feels like there's still a possibility for, for her to live out there, she's going to go there. So I think I started making this episode because I wanted to hear stories of what it meant to be brought up in Dubai because like being brought up abroad like sets you up for it sets you up to the world in this entirely different way than being brought up in your home country does and like I found that out in a very like real way when I moved back to the UK when I was like 13 and I was just thrown into this like completely different culture and you know it what was weird was that it was that it was my um you know it's my home cu country it was my like own culture but it wasn't and I wasn't I didn't understand any of it and so I wanted to talk about that experience, I guess. I wanted to hear about other people's experience with that. And I just wanted to like find out what that had done to their worldview, I guess. So the thing with Maysam's story is that, um, you know, like he, he can't go back. Like going back to his home country in the same way that so many people do after being brought up in the UAE, um, you know, he, that, this is just not an option for him. And so because the because the overarching theme of this episode has been like like what does this what does this phrase third culture kid mean? And so at the end of one of our interviews with Maysam, we asked him, like, like, what do you think of this phrase? Like, is there a label he puts on himself and and where and where does he call home? How am I a third culture kid in this situation? I don't like the term. Why? I don't know. What does it mean? I dislike the label because I don't feel like, even within that label, I don't really feel like I fit in with it. I think the reason the term gets thrown around so much is because it's made popular, you know, by Western cultures, you know? You'll have like kids jumping on a Buzzfeed video and be like, yeah, I'm a third culture kid and look at the cool things about it. And I'm just like, no, dude, it's only cool because now you've got the citizenship that you're, you're, you're set up, you're all right, you've got this freedom. and a lot of us don't, and we don't want to identify with that. I would rather just be like, I'm from here, the end. You know, I don't think it's 
maybe because I grew up with it, but I don't think it's something that that's amazing. That's like, oh yeah, I feel like I'm from Dubai, but I'm actually Syrian and my parents moved out here. I'm, I don't want to complicate it, you know? Dude, it's, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. So like what, what like 25 year old thinks I need to buy gold? And I'm not talking like bling or whatever. It's just like, I need to buy gold. I need to have gold for emergencies. Or I need to have this much cash ready to go. I need to split all of my savings into different bank accounts because the next economic crisis that happens here, I don't want to be beyond the limit that I can pull out so I can get up and go. I think about these things, you know? I'm, this is what I, this is how I live now, you know? Um, Why? Because I'm not, I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. I don't feel like I have a home anywhere. So I've got to be ready for that time when it comes. Not in like a super extreme way, but at least in the basic ways, you know? I know countries, I, off the top of my head, I know countries that I could fly to right now where I could enter without any issues and reside for a little while. Like... Worst comes to worst, I can go to Georgia right now and be there for a year. Um, and I can afford to live there for a while. And it'll be no questions asked. Go do your thing. I know these things. Where is home for you? Oh, God. <laughs> I have no home. I Home is a culmination of many places for me. It's not something I've, I've been able to crack. Um, I don't feel like I've done enough in my life or have made enough changes in my life to kind of be at a level where I can confidently answer that. I haven't lived somewhere else, so I don't know what that experience is like. I don't know if at that time, if I do move somewhere else, I'll understand what home is. But every country I go to captures a little part of me and uh, you know, my home is uh, nowhere and everywhere. <laughs> it's nowhere and everywhere. And at some point I have to make one of those places, you know, home. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and myself, Hibba Fisher, with editorial support by Persia Verlin, Laura Saab, Rosanna Zayani, and Jackie Sofia. Sound design by Fadi Geras. And a big thank you to Mason Faraj for sharing his story with us. Now, we want to hear from you. Where is home for you? Do you have a simple answer? And why or why not? Tweet to us at Kerning Cultures and let us know. Really. Until next time.